Next, this month's special series, Focus on Geriatric Medicine and Aging. ReachMD talks to experts about new thinking and innovations in the treatment of conditions of the aging body and mind. What is the physician's role in assessing elder abuse? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Lisa Gibbs, Associate Clinical Professor in the Geriatrics Program at the University of California Irvine Medical Center in Orange, California. Dr. Gibbs, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you for having me. How common is elder abuse? Elder abuse is very common. Our best reports are that it affects about 3 to 4% of our population over 65, and it is underreported and underrecognized. So it affects people that you may know and may have no idea that they're under some sort of elder abuse. How do you define elder abuse? Elder abuse, and we often say elder mistreatment as well, really is identified in different categories and different types. And these include physical abuse, neglect, self-neglect, sexual abuse, and emotional abuse. And some people also include areas of abandonment. Describe the signs of elder abuse. Depending on the type of elder abuse, the signs can be different. But in all cases, you know, the victims are sometimes very intimidated by the abusers. So, for instance, in physical abuse, a person may have the signs of bruising, of fractures, and other types of trauma. In sexual abuse, of course, the person would have the physical signs of sexual abuse. And in neglect, we often look for areas where the person hasn't been cared for properly, may not have had proper nutrition, proper medical care, and may be faltering in many areas of their lives. Who's most vulnerable? We have various research about who's vulnerable, but we don't have enough research at this point. We feel like those who are dependent upon others for activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living, and I'll explain those. So those who are dependent upon others for those are very vulnerable. Activities of daily living are those activities which are very, very basic to one's life, and they include things like being able to go to the bathroom, dressing oneself, transferring out of bed in the morning. Instrumental activities of daily living require an interface with society or the community and require that one is able to do their own shopping and transportation and telephoning. So those people who are dependent upon others for those types of activities end up being most vulnerable for abuse. What responsibility does a physician have to report elder abuse? Physicians and all healthcare professionals are mandated reporters of elder abuse. And that means that if there is even a suspicion that one of our patients is a victim of elder abuse, then we are mandated to report. At this time, there are also penalties for not reporting cases of elder abuse. The physician and other healthcare providers do not have to prove that elder abuse exists but again, only to suspect that there may be a problem and to report that to either the Adult Protective Service agencies or to law enforcement. And it is their job then to do the investigative process of of whether there is elder abuse or not present. And what does the physician need to tell the patient, if anything? That's up to the physician. I've had a, a number of patients in situations where I've reported to APS. Sometimes I may tell family members that I'm concerned about the situation at home and I'm going to have a social worker come and talk to them. And in other cases, we may 
elect not to say anything because we may feel like it may put the patient who's the victim more at risk. So we are under absolutely no obligation to tell our patients or not, but in some cases it might be better in order to preserve the patient-doctor relationship later on. But the main thing is that we're mandated reporters and we have to make that call if we suspect elder abuse. What types of penalties are imposed if physicians do not report? There are monetary penalties and also there can be time served in cases where bodily harm or death results and may result from not reporting, then the penalties are stiffer. At this time, there haven't been a lot of cases where physicians or even facilities or other healthcare providers have been convicted of not reporting, but it does, laws do exist on the books. What's your best advice regarding how physicians can maintain respect for a patient's autonomy while assessing elder abuse? Well, I think, you know, the basic tenets of communication, we always respect our patients in terms of their privacy, even if they have serious medical problems or problems of memory or dementia, we always treat them with respect. And I think just maintaining, you know, that environment of speaking to an adult and respecting their answers and their privacy is really the tenet of communication. We have to be very careful not to interview them or try to assess it in the presence of the caregiver because that may be, again, putting them at risk and they may not feel like they can tell the truth and they may feel intimidated. And sometimes people truly can't take care of themselves, but, you know, we have to do our best at maintaining that respect. And if we truly feel like they just don't have the capacity to take care of themselves, then we just need to report. Explain mental capacity and how it's evaluated. Capacity is really the ability to make decisions for oneself in terms of this issue. It is often confused with cognitive screening. For instance, if somebody has a memory problem, they often require cognitive screening and psychological screening to determine whether there is a dementia or a depression or some type of other disorder. But the presence of, you know, a diagnosis of dementia does not inform us as to whether the person has capacity to make decisions for themselves because someone can have a mild case of dementia and still have the capacity to make decisions regarding healthcare procedures or where they would like to live or who they would like to have as power of attorney, for instance. Even some persons with cases of moderate dementia may retain the capacity for some of those things. So assessing one's cognitive status requires certain tests, but then assessing capacity is a completely different area, and we need to be careful not to overlap the two. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Lisa Gibbs, Associate Clinical Professor in the Geriatrics Program at the University of California Irvine Medical Center in Orange, California, discussing the physician's role in assessing elder abuse. Dr. Gibbs, tell us how you actually assess for mental capacity. Well, there are many different ways. I think as physicians coming through our educational system, we have been taught to assess capacity in terms of whether somebody can consent to having a medical procedure. And a lot of those principles apply. We have to make sure the person can understand what the medical problem is requiring the procedure, what the procedure is, the risks and benefits of the procedure, and the likely outcomes of the procedure. So in terms of that particular example, we determine that there has to be an appreciation for what's going on. 
an ability to make a decision, and then an ability to comprehend consequences of that decision. And those are the basic areas that translate to other areas of life. For instance, if an older person is being forced to sign over their will against their will, do they have the ability, really the capacity to do that? Do they appreciate that, number one, they're being coerced in doing so? Do they appreciate the consequences of signing over their property? And if so, then perhaps they have the ability to make that decision. But if not, then we determine there is a lack of capacity and that that person is extremely vulnerable to elder abuse, and in this case, financial abuse. What is the difference between capacity and competency? Capacity is the ability to make a decision. Competency is really related to legal definition, and that is an issue which the courts decide. Does the presence of dementia increase the risk for abuse? Yes, absolutely. The presence of dementia is an extremely important risk factor for being vulnerable to abuse. And the ability to remember or the lack of ability to take care of one's daily affairs puts one certainly at risk for a caregiver, perhaps, that has ill intentions. Are there common traits that weave through abusers? Again, we need more study on the matter, but we feel at this time that most of the abusers are well-known to the victims. We feel that between 80 and 90% of abusers are family members. Of the family members, 50% are children and 20% are intimate partners. It appears that women and men perpetrate abuse in almost equal numbers, and one-third of the abusers themselves can be aged or at least over 60 years of age. Oftentimes, You know, we may find the abusers to be children that are perhaps living at home, that are dependent upon the older person for finances, that are unemployed, and for some reason dependent on the older adult. It creates an unhealthy situation where the older adult is dependent upon their caregiver for daily needs, but yet the caregiver is dependent upon the older adult for other needs such as financial. What does the research reveal in this area? Well, there are many, many types of research. Actually, we are from uh, the Center of Excellence, University of California, Irvine, and we have a number of research studies going on at this time. Some of our research revolves around identifying signs of abuse. For instance, elder abuse is a very interesting field because many of the signs of abuse can be interpreted perhaps as just the result of aging. So, for instance, is a bruise a result of abuse or is a bruise just something that occurs, you know, normally in somebody who's aging? And we have at least two studies that are right now interpreting how we can tell or prove or have a fair fair idea of whether some bruise is caused by abuse. We have some other studies which are examining the risk factors for elder mistreatment. And there are other organizations which are studying risk factors for self-neglect, for instance. So we have various research studies going on. We're certainly at the beginning of this field. We're about 30 years behind where child abuse was, and we we have learned a lot from other areas of child abuse and domestic violence. How do you tell the difference between the different types of bruises? So our first bruising study looked at bruises that just occurred accidentally. And we found that most of the, what we would call accidental or non-abusing bruises were on the extremities and very rarely found on the neck, the chest, the ears, or the genitals. And we also found something very interesting that you could not 
tell how old a bruise was based on its color, which pretty much eradicated a myth about bruising. It's much easier to tell the age of bruising, I think, in children than in elderly persons because the skin in older persons is different. You know, the vessels are more fragile and the skin is thinner. So showing that the progression of color does not always follow what we expect in older persons was very important to uh, to determine. Is financial abuse a form of elder abuse? Yes, financial abuse is a form of elder abuse. Um, again, it's extremely underreported and I think underappreciated. It can range from the lotteries, for instance, the Canadian lotteries, the Jamaican lotteries, to contractors that come to one's home who promise a service and then don't deliver. It can also involve, again, family members who coerce one into signing over their property, or it can involve perhaps caregivers who are given um, an ATM card and a password to make it easier for the older person to get groceries. And actually, just recently, people in the financial industry, especially in the banking industry, are now also mandated reporters. So financial abuse is actually a very significant uh, piece of elder abuse. It's really an area where older persons need to be careful to protect their assets because they are hunted by, you know, those who would prey upon persons who have worked their whole lives and and worked to amass some type of ability to pay for their retirement. Dr. Gibbs, what's your take-home message? For physicians, I think the take-home message is that elder abuse is very, very common. It does occur in our patients, probably not a physician out there who doesn't have a patient who has been a victim of elder abuse. And just to keep it on the differential diagnosis, you know, just to keep it in mind that it's a possibility for somebody who comes in with a bruise, for somebody who's, you know, has a developing dementia and a new caregiver, uh, for somebody who, for some reason, doesn't fill their medications on time. Just to keep it in the forefront of their mind that it's a possibility, I think, will help physicians even understand cases where patients don't seem to be compliant or who come in with stories that don't quite match their injuries. Dr. Gibbs, thank you for joining us to discuss the physician's role in assessing elder abuse. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library of on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Geriatric Medicine and Aging. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, visit us at ReachMD.com. And download ReachMD's iPhone app, Medical Radio, to listen to the same live stream of medical news and information, plus CME and thousands of searchable podcasts. Download the Medical Radio app today.